the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. You need only to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We'd love to have your calls and questions. Hey, it's Tuesday, so we don't have any business to clean up, so let's get right to some questions that have been sent in. This first one is from Jill from our mobile app. She says, Pastor Ron, in Romans eleven sixteen, is Paul referring to the Gentiles as the dough, or is he referring to the Jews? This passage always makes me scratch my head. Could you please help me with this passage of Scripture? Thank you. I can do that, Jill. Let me read the passage uh, first for everybody, and then I'll do my best to answer. Uh, Paul writes, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Uh, Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in the hope that I may provoke my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first part of the dough is holy, so is the whole branch. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, a couple of things here, Jill, that are important for us to understand. When when Paul's doing this, he understood uh, the the concept, a Jewish concept of a remnant well. He had no false hopes or ideas that every Jew would be saved or that his ministry would move even a majority of Jews. He wanted to make them jealous with the work that he was doing with Gentiles and with the obvious fruit of the Spirit and the power of God's Spirit. He was hoping that Jews would be provoked to jealousy and seek and then find the truth. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, but here's what Paul wanted. Uh, he wanted all those saved who would respond. Now, he didn't know who would, um, but that's why he preached to all of them. And the idea there was that uh, he just wanted to go get him. Now, his ministry is to be admired because it was a ministry to enemies in large part. Uh, he was not their enemy. They made Paul his enemy. He loved them. Romans chapter 9, the first four verses there, Jill, are absolutely amazing. He He literally says with what I call a triple-layered oath, um, we know the Holy Spirit wrote it, otherwise we wouldn't believe it. But basically, he said, I'd give my place in heaven if only my brothers, the Jews, would believe. Now, that's a, an amazing statement. It tells us a lot about how his heart really was the heart of Jesus. Jesus died 
for his people. He came to his own and his own received him not. Paul said, I'd give my place in heaven up. And so he he made them a target of his ministry, even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And all of this, while they wanted him dead, while they were chasing him out of every town, and he refused to harbor resentment or bitterness uh, whatsoever. He just wanted as many Jews as possible to become Christians. And let me add here that um, when a Jew becomes a Christian, it doesn't make him a messianic Jew or a completed Jew. It makes him a Christian. And that's what happened with the Apostle Paul, who was as Jewish as you get. That's what happened to Peter and, and James and John and all of the other disciples who became apostles. So Paul just wanted him saved. Now, his basis for ministry was his fervent belief that God raises the dead. Uh, he believed it. Um, that's why he endured such perilous ministry. That's why he offered himself to death and suffering every day. It's why he could write for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Um, he would sacrifice his life for the opportunity to die and be with Jesus because he knew that God raised the dead. Now, the first fruits, which is if the part of the dough offered as first fruits, Jill, is a reference to the first Jews converted to Christianity, the apostles among them. We remember that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, uh, all the way through Acts chapter 9, the church was entirely Jewish. It wasn't until the household of Cornelius was baptized in the Holy Spirit and born again that Gentiles even entered the scene in the first century church. So when he talks about the the, the part of the dough offered as first fruits, um, that's almost certainly a reference to the, those first Jews converted uh, to Christianity. And he says, if they are holy, then the whole branch, or the whole batch, rather, is holy. If the root, which is uh, a reference to the patriarchs, Abraham most notably, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but most certainly Abraham, if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, we're the branches, but but Abraham is um, the, the root of, he was the first Jew, um, the the, the um, apostles and the first Jewish convert. Um, they were the, the ones that are explained here or described here as the dough. Now, the Jews who would read this letter, they would understand clearly the point Paul was making. When the harvest came in, Jews would offer the first of their harvested crop to God as a grain offering. The principle is that the first of our increase belongs to God, not the last, not the leftovers. We Christians need to remember that. And Paul is simply saying uh, this offering uh, is a metaphor for Israel, those early converts, and the root, Abraham. Uh, it's wholly dedicated to God, thus the offspring. Uh, Israel remains dedicated to God. And then those of us who are believers um, then um, we need to be uh, considerate of their role. And, you know, Jill, over the centuries, there has been a lot of anti-Semitism um, that has plagued the church. Martin Luther um, is most notably, um, um, he, he was an anti-Semite. The Jews killed Jesus, and um, um, that was his downfall. Um, it's impossible. Again, if you're a Christian, a really born-again Christian, it's impossible to be anti-Semitic, to hate individual Jews, certainly to hate Israel. It's it's even more amazing in a, in a really negative sense today because we have entire denominations to distance themselves from Israel. But you see, without Israel, there's no Christian church. How quickly we forget. Now, the truth is, Jews, the individual people, most have abandoned God altogether. They don't believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus says um, um, he's the only way to the Father in heaven. And yet, there is a remnant, larger than you might believe, a remnant of Jews who have become fervent believers in their Messiah. So, that's 
what he's talking about there, Jill. I hope that makes sense to you, and I thank you for the question. And I love it when somebody says, you know, a passage of Scripture has been bugging me for a long time, and I want to know what it means. That's a really, really good one. And by the way, on this radio station, I am doing my teaching uh, is in, not not this live program, obviously, but, but my teaching programs, um, um, I think 4.30 in the morning or 5 o'clock in the morning and 9... Oh, gosh, 6 o'clock in the in this station. We're on stations all over the country, so I'm trying to figure out where it is. But um, our 6 o'clock program here on KSLR, uh, I'm currently in the book of Romans. And uh, I'm actually enjoying when I get to listen to that when I'm in the car or something like that. So, Jill, thank you. That was a great question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question. This one is from Dewey. He says, good morning, Pastor. I keep hearing about this subject, the subject of pragmatism in the church. And I like to understand what this is about. Can you explain what pragmatism is in today's church? Um, Yeah, in short, Dewey. Uh, pragmatism is a way around the Word of God. It's a way around trusting the Word of God. Now, it's a little more detailed than that. Um, you know, we we one of the, the tenets of the church is sola scriptura. That, that's all believers should believe, that, 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 that the Word is the final authority. And pragmatists say, no, you know, you've got to give people what feels good. You've got to give people what works. And especially when you see these seeker-sensitive churches or mega churches, they say, well, 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 you can see God is blessing us because our churches are full and people are making prof- professions of faith. And they're saying, so we're giving them what works. We give them what they want. They respond to it. The problem is that they're throwing the word of God uh, basically out of the equation. They're throwing faith out of the equation. They're they're approaching it like a business would approach it. You know, if you wanted to open up a business in a part of town, you'd understand the economy, you'd understand the demographics of that area, and then you would uh, create a marketing campaign that would appeal to those people. And uh, it would help your business. And, and pragmatism in business is a good thing. Um, the problem is it's not a good thing in the church. Acts chapter 2 says God saved daily those who were being saved. It doesn't say that our programs did or our approach did or our refusal to, to, to cling only to Scripture as a final authority. What, what he's saying is I'm adding. Your job is to do what you're supposed to do. And pragmatism is a way around that. And uh, on the surface, you got to admit, Dewey, it, it looks like uh, uh, it's a good thing because it's hard to argue with results, especially if you're not steeped in the scriptures. Uh, it's hard to look at, at, uh, at results like so many of these churches get and, and say, well, they're wrong. Say, how could it be wrong? You know, we're blessed. We're, we're, we're uh, uh, abundantly popular. Our church is full. Um, and so to them, that's what success is. Uh, but pragmatism is always man-made. We have programs. We give them what they want. We scratch their itching ears. And when we do that and people respond, we shouldn't be surprised. You know, do we, I've said many times on this program that the easiest thing to do as it relates to uh, church life is to have a big church. It really is easy. You give the people what they want. You tell them what they want to hear. And believe me, they will come. The problem is there's no depth in that church. You know, these kind of churches, the Joel Osteen churches, the Willow Creeks, the, 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 we have some churches in our community uh, who, who fall into this, this category. Um, um, they don't prepare the people for real life. Because the only way you can do that is teaching the Word. And so they just don't prepare the people for pain. They don't prepare them for suffering. They don't prepare them for loss or for grief. And what you end up with is a bunch of really shallow Christians who aren't ready. And that's what pragmatism in the church is really all about. It stands in direct opposition to sola scriptura. And uh, I, uh, I will repeat, if you don't hold that the Word of God, our Bible, 
is the final and complete authority on all matters of doctrine and practice in the church, then anything goes. And because it works, the pragmatists say, well, see, we know better than you do. And unfortunately, that's not at all the case. Thank you very much, Dewey. I appreciate the question. Uh, Here is a question from Anonymous from our email inbox. Um, He says, I have a friend who was a pastor and has now stepped down. He was persuaded to step down by his wife. Personally, he shared with me that he really wanted to stay on as a pastor, but felt that his wife had made a compelling argument. I know that in a marriage, a Christian couple should be in one accord when it comes to important decisions. So I'm not saying that the wife is not supposed to share her opinion or to share her heart. And ultimately, though, the final decision should be the husband's. I disagree with that, by the way. I'll tell you in a moment. Um, and I think the weight of such a decision is more important for a husband who is a pastor or a leader. Should a wife exercise and have such persuasion as to manipulate husband's decision? It makes me think of Genesis 3.16 where God points out to Eve uh, her intentions and potential to take control and rule over Adam. Uh, is my friend in sin? How can I encourage him and be there for him now that he's not serving? Honestly, it's very difficult to talk to him without bringing something up about church and church life. Since we're both Christians, everything is awkward right now. Um, Anonymous, I can feel the awkwardness in your question. I've got some friends who uh, either quit uh, their role as a pastor, a role that they knew and I knew they were called to. In fact, some of them are, are churches that we planted. Uh, and, and it is very awkward to talk to them because what do you say? You can't say, how's it going? Because you know how it's going. When you're doing something that God wants you to do and then you make a U-turn and walk away from God's will for your life, um, you know, you, you can't say, well, how about them cowboys? Or, boy, the weather. Isn't it hot outside? Uh, it's awkward. Because in your previous conversations, you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about church, you're talking about um, um, what God is doing in the people. And and uh, I'll tell you what I talk about all the time, and, and Paul and I both do this, we do it together, but with other people as well. Uh, all we can talk about is how blessed we are, how privileged we are to be asked by God to do this thing that has been the single most joyful thing in our lives. It is so fruitful and so abundant. And, and you know, um, when people walk away from that, whatever their reasons, whatever their excuses, um, yes, it's going to be awkward. Now, I told you I disagree when you said the final decision uh, should be the husband's. And the reason, Anonymous, I said that is because the final decision has to be God's. God hires. God fires. God is the one who can send us another direction. But here's the thing. As a Christian, whether you're a pastor or anything else, you've got to stay the course. God is a perfect pleasing and acceptable will for you, that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 work that he's prepared for you as you have been prepared for it, that work is is where you fit. You know, if you've ever put on a pair of shoes, now shoes aren't typically comfortable when you put them on, but every once in a while you put on a pair of shoes and it's just perfect. It's like your feet have been in them forever. That's what walking in the will of God is like. That's what it's like for me to be a pastor. And I can't quit. I have no right to quit until he releases me. Now, that's really important. You know, for many years, God's told me to stop doing this. He would let me know otherwise. But, but for many years, every year we went on vacation And we go on vacation, same place, every summer. And uh, every year when I'd go on vacation, the very first thing I would do is offer Jesus my resignation. It's your church, Lord. I'm your servant. Here's my resignation if you want me to do something else. And repeatedly, of course, God has said, no, don't accept your resignation. Only God has the authority to do that. Now, let me come at this from a different angle. Um, It is impossible for a pastor, whether it's me or anybody else, 
It's impossible for a pastor to be effective if his wife is not in agreement. Amos 3.3 3 says, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so? That's a principle that we can't ever forget. So if Paula wasn't 100% supportive and 100% committed to this work, not just supporting me, but the work that she does, then we wouldn't survive here. It's simply we wouldn't have survived uh, a year, uh, let alone the the 27-plus years that we've been doing this. So um, my pastors, all of my staff pastors, they know from from the jump that if their wife ever gets sideways with a vision of this ministry, or with um, um, they're, they're, they can no longer support the work of their husband if they're not going to be in church, if they're not going to be a part of our, our pastoral team, um, then they're going to step down. And, and that doesn't mean they're bad people. It doesn't mean that they've done something wrong, certainly not sin. But I want them to be partners in the ministry together, but also partners with the rest of us who've committed our lives to this. And if there was a pastor whose wife was trying to convince him to stop, I would say go. Just go. It wouldn't be his choice. It would be mine. And um, uh, again, I want to emphasize it, that, that if you're not a partner in this, husband and wife, then it's just an impossible situation. Now, relative to your friend, is he in sin? Only God knows that. Um, I don't know whether or not um, uh, he just let her talk him into it or I don't know what the circumstances were. I don't know if she felt that the the family was being ignored. I I mean, I have no details at all, and there's so much that goes into this anonymous. So um, I can say this. Uh, The wife should not be in a place where she can be Uh, I'll use your words, persuasively manipulating. If she has questions, if she has problems, issues, husbands and wives have to be able to talk about those things. But if, in fact, he wanted to stay and she talked him out of it, and the idea, you you used the term, she made a compelling argument according to him, uh, there is no compelling argument. God said to do it, and we can't quit. Let me say this. We're running out of time in this first half of the program. I think we've got about two or three minutes left. Um, but um, I, I've got a call holding. If the caller can please hold on till the other side of the break. Four we calls get to, holding? We get to. Oh, okay. Um, um, there should, God is in one. We Christians, we cannot quit ever. So I hope that makes sense. Okay, I got a little bit more time than I thought, so let me go to James from Belmont on line one. James, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Oh, hey, thank you, Pastor Ron. Uh, sound like I'm taking up all your time. I called yesterday, but I also had another question yesterday, and I didn't get around to asking it. Um, and essentially, um, I've been going back and revisiting Romans, and I hear uh, people talking about chapter 9, 10, 11, and how those are chapters of dispensation. And then I study the word dispensationalism uh, as far as it being uh, 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 as application to uh, Christianity uh, uh, covenant. Uh, They almost make it, it, to me, they almost make uh, the thought of dispensation as if, um, uh, for instance, as if there can't be uh, an original covenant that kind of, say, for instance, would continue with the Jews, and yet um, Paul spoke of the mystery uh, that was revealed to him, uh, which, uh, in, in essence, I don't know if it's a perfect definition, but it's a change of a covenant that's bringing in uh, the, the Gentiles. Um, I, I don't think I understand when people are talking and they're saying that they're a dispensationalist, I don't even understand if that's a different usage of the word. So I'm, I'm really, the, the word just kind of confuses me. It seems to me there's different ways of applying it and using it descriptively. Um, and if you could, if I could just get off the air and, and listen to you, if you can just kind of school me a little bit in Dispensation 101. 
Thank you. Thank you, James. And I'm going to ask you to stay on the radio or keep listening to the radio because I'm not going to get uh, uh, this is too much of a subject, too big of a subject to deal with in the, the minute or so that we've got left. So uh, let me say that uh, I personally believe that uh, unless you understand dispensationalism, you can't make sense of the Bible. Uh, we here at Calvary Chapel are dispensationalists. And um, I think there's just no other way to make sense of of the word. And to go any farther than that with the time I have left is going to be confusing. So uh, you can just hold on to that. And then at the top of the uh, um, second half of the program, uh, I'll go on and be a little bit more in detail about that. But dispensationalism is solid um, doctrine. Uh, it's something I think that um, forces us to look at see uh, who the letters are being written written to, who the covenants are being um, made with, and and I'll get that on the other side of the break, James. Thank you very very much. Hey, well we've got thirty minutes left in our Tuesday show three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back. In two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. And James, I'm so sorry that I ran out of time. Um, I hope I didn't confuse you with trying to to give you a a very brief summary. Let me go into a little bit more depth. We would love your live calls and questions. So 340-9585 for those. Um, Dispensationalism is simply a, a recognition that God works in different ways at different times and with different groups of people. Now, it's true that God doesn't change, but the way God works changes. Um, just a, the, the, the easiest illustration of that is God dealt with Israel according to the law. He deals with us, New Testament Christians, according to grace. That's, that's different dispensations. Now, we've got to be careful because there are people that have taken dispensationalism and like they do with everything else, they go way, way, way out of balance and, and, and get crazy. And we've, we've got some people that try to prank call this program all the time who are crazy, extreme dispensationalists, and they'll find a dispensation literally behind every period. Um, but, but primarily, there are seven basic dispensations. You can go to you can you can um, um, Google C. I. Schofield. His Schofield Bible was one that really popularized the idea of dispensationalism, um, and it's simply a, a framework for biblical interpretation. Uh, there's two primary ones, and and that doesn't mean there are others, but there are not others. There are, but they're inconsequential. The first is covenant theology. And covenant theology stands in contrast to dispensationalism in regard to the relationship between the Old Covenant uh, and the New Covenant. Now, um, when somebody is a covenant uh, theologian, um, they will commonly mistake the covenants made with Israel, the promises made to Israel, and they will take them for um, Christians today. And that's simply not true. If you go and look at the Old Testament, that the law was given to Israel. It wasn't given to you, and it wasn't given to me. Jesus later came and obviously fulfilled the law, canceling the Old Covenant. And Jesus also initiated the New Covenant. So those are dispensations. The dispensation um, that we live in is is the dispensation of grace. It is the, the, the way God is working in these last days. And uh, since Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, this has been the work that God is doing. This is the dispensation that will take us to the end of the age. 
So uh, we have to be careful. Somebody who is not a dispensationalist, for an example, James will look at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and they will they'll say, okay, we got to live by the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, nobody can do that. And so it leads to all kinds of frustration. Dispensationalists, as we are here at Calvary Chapel, um, we take the Bible literally. And that's what you're supposed to do whenever possible. Now, there's clearly times when it's it's intended to be figurative. And, and those times are easy to determine. But, but we take the Bible literally. Covenant theologians simply don't do that. Um, um, what, what you really have to do is be very careful to interpret as you read. A covenant theologian, a, a Calvinist, for instance, would be a covenant theologian. They'll take a systematic theology, James, and they'll sort of lay it over the Bible and they'll try to interpret the Bible through that that covenant theology, um, that 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 uh, uh, idea that well, everything in the Bible then has to fit this view I have. We who are dispensationalists say no. Uh, in the Old Testament, God is speaking to Jews. In the New Testament, God is speaking to Gentiles from a completely different dispensation. And uh, it's the only way to make sense of the Bible. Otherwise, you're going to have people taking all the promises to Israel and and appropriating them uh, in our lives, which is just terrible hermeneutics. Uh, you're also going to find a lot of the covenant theologians who are anti-Israel. Uh, um, and and you know, you're trying to fit the law, the Ten Commandments, into a New Testament perspective. It's also true that typically these covenant theologians will will put more weight on the words in red in our Bibles, um, James, uh, uh, the the, the red letters, uh, Jesus' words. They'll give them more weight than they will say the the, the the words of Luke or Paul or James or Peter or John or any of the other writers in the New Testament when, in fact, we know that they all carry equal weight because they were all written by God himself. So it's the only way. I have people that will come to me all the time and say, but we're supposed to keep the Sabbath. And I'll always ask them, okay, go back into the Bible. Go to Exodus chapter 20. And to whom is God speaking? Israel. And you're supposed to keep that covenant forever, they said. So we should be observing the Sabbath. And then we say, but wait a minute. Now let's go to Jesus in the upper room. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. And then Paul in Romans speaking um, clearly uh, about fulfilling, Jesus fulfilling the law, thus canceling the code. Romans, Galatians, Colossians. Uh, That's very, very clear. So this is why... Being a, a, a dispensationalist, a balanced dispensationalist, is the only way to interpret the Bible literally that makes any sense at all. And uh, if you go back through church history, um, when um, there was no discussion about dispensationalism, uh, that's why they got so off focus uh, so often. That's why there was so much uh, division and heresy in the early churches. And the same thing is true now if you're not looking at the Bible. If I can tell somebody the Bible is the final authority and they disagree with me, then we're going to have all kinds of disagreements uh, theologically or doctrinally. So I hope that makes sense. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, which you mentioned, uh, are, are a good illustration. I can show you examples of dispensationalism uh, throughout the Bible. Jesus, when he went in the synagogue, and read um, uh, what his mission statement was. Um, He left off part of it because he was establishing a new approach. Uh, But Romans 9, 10, and 11 are simply Paul using the nation of Israel as an example of God's faithfulness. The case that he laid out in the first eight chapters of Romans and it's almost like in chapter 9, he's calling Israel to the witness stand to demonstrate that God is faithful just as he laid out his argument in the first eight chapters. So, James, I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. Um, C.I. Schofield would be a good good place. Uh, my One of my first Bibles uh, was a Schofield 
study Bible. And the uh, reason I don't like study Bibles, I've said that on this program, uh, but uh, uh, his his wasn't really a study Bible with all kinds of notes, but it, it was sort of set up in dispensations. So, James, thank you very, very much. Let's go to our friend Caesar on line one from San Antonio. Caesar, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Yes, hi, Pastor Ron. Um, I was calling to ask a question about Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Um, I'm going to just go to 18 when Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So I'm kind of, I guess the question I want to ask is give, Jesus kind of gives us two scenarios, until heaven and earth pass away and until all is accomplished. Now, I guess my question is, um, is it like one or the other? Is it both? And when he says, until all is accomplished, is that his death or resurrection, or is that like the final judgment? So if you could clarify that for me, I would highly appreciate it. I I can do that. Thank you very, very much. Now, um, remember, Matthew chapter 5 begins the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that we have to remember, and I say this repeatedly, is that Jesus' ministry was entirely Jewish. Entirely Jewish. And I think we forget that as we read this, because uh, Matthew chapter 5 is an impossible standard. The last verse in Matthew chapter 5 is, be ye perfect. In other words, Jesus is saying at the end of all of this, if you want to get to heaven, here's how you do it. If you don't believe in me, you've got to be perfect. And of course, nobody is. So what he's saying, and I'm going to go back to verse 17 as well. Um, he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, when he fulfills them, Caesar, that's the, the, the when, when everything is accomplished. Uh, when Jesus establishes a new covenant, everything is accomplished. Now, when he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He's not setting out two standards. What he's saying, he's, it's a very Jewish way of saying, uh, uh, until everything is done, my word stands. And of course, we know that's still the case because we have now a new covenant. It doesn't mean that there's no value in the old covenant. Um, I love it. I get to teach it every week. Um, but but we have to understand the value and the practical application of an old covenant whose code has been canceled. And the reason it was canceled is because it stood against us. It did not accomplish the will of God, which was fellowship or relationship with God. Jesus accomplished all of that. And when he said it is finished, that was when Everything was accomplished. Now, there are prophetic things still to be done. We all know that. The rapture of the church, the great tribulation, and all of those things. But um, as it relates to the covenant, and Jesus was preaching to Jews here, uh, he's telling them um, that the very law and the prophets, he says in another place that the law and the prophets testified of him, Um, And here's what he's saying. I'm standing there in the flesh and and Jesus is saying, as you see me, as I'm living and breathing, none of the things written in the law of the prophets will ever pass away. They are permanent until everything is accomplished. So it's not both these things have to happen. It's all accomplished. You know, Peter says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and we know that's going to be true. But he's not talking about that. This is a Jewish way of saying uh, that the word and its its commands are complete and uh, will never pass away until they have finished uh, what God intended them to do. And And we know Galatians says that the the law uh, is to be considered a schoolmaster leading us to Jesus. Well, the Sermon on the Mount, um, Caesar, just sort of jumps that up uh, because the Sermon on the Mount takes the law to a whole new level. Not only do you have to do what the law says perfectly, but the spirit of the law says uh, if you do it with the wrong heart or the wrong motive, even if you don't have the, the sinful action, Jesus said, if you call somebody a fool, um, if you if you uh, have ever lusted in your heart, 
uh, he said, then those things cause you to be guilty as well. And of course, we're all guilty. So that's what that is all about. Caesar, thank you very, very much for the question. Here's a question from our email inbox from Jeffrey. He says, hello, Pastor Ron, I pray you're doing well. Jeffrey, we are doing well. Uh, and I thank you for that. Your prayers mean more than you can possibly know. Then he says, in reading Luke sixteen nineteen, the rich man and Lazarus, according to the story, the rich man was asking Father Abraham to send someone to his five brothers for their salvation. Is he asking Father Abraham to send an angel? Also in the story, the rich man seems to have memory on earth regarding his brother's life. When we pass from this life, will we have memories of it? Thank you for responding. Um, yeah, this is a story. This isn't a parable. And so this is a real story. And and uh, Father Abraham's why paradise is called uh, Abraham's bosom uh, often. Um, the rich man was in torment, and he was lamenting the fact that he was wrong. I thought I had it. I thought God was had blessed me. Being a Jew, I thought I would be in paradise. But here I am in this eternal torment. And he's pleading with Abraham to send someone, not an angel. Uh, it could be any any being, but but send someone. In fact, in this case, I think it's send send uh, Lazarus um, to to. Um, to, to tell my family, and and Abraham rebukes him. He says, "No, the the yeah, he can't come there. You can't come here. The gulch between us is too wide." And then he said, basically, he told him the truth. He said, "You know, even if someone were to rise from the dead, they wouldn't believe." And so there's enough evidence, is what he's saying, of the reality, the truth of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Um, uh, but but. Clearly, um, there was no second chance. Now, um, relative to the question, when we pass in this life, will we have memories of it? Um, when we go to be with Jesus, Jeffrey, we will um, have only good memories. Um, there will be no more sadness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. So when we go, we will only have memories of the good things, the, the blessings of God. So um, in, in that sense, we will have memories, um, but it's a whole new order of things. It's almost impossible to explain, um, but um, um, we, we won't think like we do now. Um, you know, we, we like to think that our loved ones in heaven are watching out for us, looking down from heaven, and they're not. They're with Jesus. If they would look at earth, if they saw what was going on here, they would be sad and they would cry. So we won't have memories of it at all. Uh, it is clear from Luke 16 that those in eternal torment will have memories of the things they missed, the opportunities they had to to, to be saved and, and their rejection of it. So that's part of the torment. They will be conscious. The torment will be physical. It will be eternal. It's deepest, darkest blackness. And there's no um, no escaping it. Not None whatsoever. So thank you, Caesar. Hope that helps. Or Jeffrey, I'm sorry. Caesar was a phone call before. Let's go to Matthew on line one from San Antonio. Matthew, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Yes, Pastor Ron. Hello. Um Hi. It's not the first time, uh, not not the last time either, and I appreciate all <laughs> the wisdom uh, throughout the years uh, or throughout the times that I have uh, called and listened to on the air and stuff like Thank that. You, so I, I can definitely tell the Holy Spirit is is speaking through you and and you know touching our hearts uh, through the airwaves. So you know, biggest appreciation there. Um, Thank you. This is not a question. This is a prayer request. Uh, my son is going to start school tomorrow, and a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of other children are starting school recently or have already started school. So my would be a prayer request to have you know, prayer over you know, a blanket of protection over our children and our, our teachers and staff and, and the parents as well. Uh, to start another school year and, and have it have them be a successful year for all of us with um, no um, 
no hurdles, even though we know that there are going to be. But, you know, yeah. just uh, that's a prayer request. And I will Thank you, answer in agreement. Uh, and I'll be in agreement uh, off the air. Thank you very much. Pastor. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, God bless you. You're so kind. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm thrilled to do that. Uh, we we, as you know, Matthew, as you probably know, we have a school here. Uh, we're starting our 23rd year, um, and um, uh, boy, we pray for the teachers, uh, not just our teachers, but the public school teachers who are in our our and, and college professors uh, who are in our church. Um, every year before school starts. So uh, let me do that now. And then uh, I think we, we've got a couple of weeks left before we start. 22nd? 22nd. Uh, we, our school starts on the 22nd. So I'll be doing this again just prior to that. So, Father, we lift uh, Matthew's son to you. Um, but, but not just his son, all the kids. As they start school, Lord, we do pray that this is a blessed year. Lord, here's what I pray. I pray that their teachers, especially if they're the public school teachers, um, are, 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 are Christians. They reject the lies of this world. I pray that they take a genuine interest in the children. And I pray that they do that by agreeing with you. I pray, Father, for those teachers who are not born-again believers. I pray that you would reveal to them the folly of what they're teaching. How difficult it is to be in rebellion against you. I pray for moms and dads who are going to be saying goodbye to some kids for the first time. It's always a, an emotional moment. We always have kindergarten parents crying more than the kindergartners are. Um, but Lord, may this just be a wonderful year where your name is glorified. Protect the kids that belong to you in those schools, and may they be a light to the kids who don't know anything about you. And by the power of your Spirit, Lord, bless them, protect them in the light of of every parent's concern now uh, over the violence that is is overwhelming schools and school districts as we've um, experienced so tragically here in Texas. Lord, we pray for for safety protection, and an environment where the kids can get to know you. Bless those teachers. Bless the administrators. And draw them to you for your glory. Amen. Matthew, thank you for that opportunity to do that. Well, we're inside now five minutes, so here's a question from Jacob from our email inbox. Um, Hi, Pastor Ron. What is the difference when it comes to different denominations? I was attempting to share my faith, and the guy said he was a Christian Catholic. I'm not sure what it means. It led me to Google different denominations, and and online it says that Catholics are Christians. What about Lutherans, Pentecostals, Lutherans, and Lutherans he repeated, uh, Baptists to include others? I thought Catholics were a different religion. Why are there different Christian denominations? I don't think Jesus referred himself as a particular denomination. Am I wrong? Yeah, Jesus would be a little upset over the condition of the church, Jacob. Um, but um, here's 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 what we know now. Now you're you're right. Google will tell you that that um, uh, Catholics are Christians, largest Christian uh, block in the world. Um, but that's not true. Um, the way you're a Christian is to be born again. Period. So whether it's in the Catholic Church, where it's really hard to be born again, Jacob, because they don't teach that you need to. They believe that being born again is taken care of with infant baptism, and of course that's nonsense. But um, whether you're a Catholic, a Lutheran, a Pentecostal, or a Baptist, or anything else, um, um, Jesus said you must be born again. And denominations, there's nothing wrong necessarily with the with the denominations themselves. People have different styles of worship, different places they're comfortable. Uh, we've had people who were raised their whole lives in a denomination and, and in many cases in the same church. And when those churches went goofy, uh, they didn't want to leave. But here's the definition of a Christian comes from Jesus himself. You must be born again. Or you'll in no way inherit the kingdom of God. And he was talking to a very religious man, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, when he said it. 
So if you are born again, you are a Christian. Now, relative to um, Catholicism, um, they are wrongly classified as Christians because generally speaking, they deny the tenets of Christianity. Um, um, They've got the same Father, same Son, same Holy Spirit. Uh, but the relationship with God comes through the church rather than we have the opportunity through the one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, to come to God on our own. Um, Lutherans, Pentecostals, Baptists, um, Methodists, and others, um, they are uh, are professing their creed is Christian. Um, but remember, um, a creed doesn't save us. Jesus saves us, and we've got to be surrendered to the Word of God, our Bible, in order to know who Jesus is. And he's the one who said, you must be born again. So, Jacob, the the differences, the denominations, uh, if you find a church that's faithful to teach the Bible, and you know that they're, they're, they're teaching you must be born again, the pastors are are solid in their exegesis of the scripture and you're growing in your faith, then then you be the Christian there and you'll benefit from that Christian teaching. But if they're not holding on to the word of God and most of the denominations that you listed no longer hold that the word of God is his inerrant perfect word. And that's a problem. Jacob, thank you for the question. Wow, today flew by. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I will be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word at 4 o'clock. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.